The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. On the mark, on the mark, the gospel according to Mark. It's actually not according to Mark. It's really according to Peter, and we'll talk about that a little bit this morning in preparation. Uh, There's an overwhelming amount of things to say. I read uh, far beyond my ability to almost comprehend or compile what I wanted to say to you today. So I want to make this somewhat simple. First thing, as simple as this book. No, I would never try to sell you a book on a Sunday morning. Yes, I would, but we're not selling it. It's called the Picture Bible. I've mentioned this before, and many years ago, um, we had little tiny children and they would go to Sunday school and they had one, at least one of these around the house. And this is not the reason you do it, I get it, but it was kind of a proof positive that this, this was happening. Those of you that had this, this may be what I read as a child uh, myself. I'm not sure when this uh, came out. But they would go to their Sunday school classes and, and largely know more than the teachers, not because they were brighter than the teachers, but because of this crazy little comic book. And yet it's profoundly helpful to give you a broad view of what the Lord Jesus is doing and of the Old Testament uh, prophets and what they said. So the picture Bible, that's just for free. And it may be one of the most important things I say this morning. The tools we use are very important in life. The, the, uh, uh, I'll say this again, the uh, uh, ESV, English Standard Version of the Bible, study Bible, is, is worth its weight in gold. I've uh, probably looked at every uh, uh, prophet's words or the biblical points being made, and it's just a fine, fine evangelical uh, document for you to use. I use a number of different sources, some of whom some of their fundamentals, as we say in sports, some of their fundamentals aren't right. They're amazing storytellers, perhaps, or have an encyclopedic knowledge of Scripture, but they end up in some funny places, and I I wouldn't recommend them to you unless you're, you know, kind of well-versed in what is a solid evangelical theology, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory, the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon His people and changes them from the inside out to be His witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Samaria, and to the other uttermost parts of the world. And Mark here, this thing says, what is it? The gospel according to Mark. The interesting thing about that is, uh, how many of you were with us through our Acts um, period? We'll call it that. Anybody? Um, During that period of time, we talked about Mark a significant amount because he was a missionary. And he was a very brave missionary, but I'll start this way. He went with Paul on his first missionary journey, and we're not speaking on this this morning, but if you see a picture of that missionary journey, they have these like little tiny footprints that you can hardly see when you look in your study Bible or in your concordance. And the footprints, one has a dot, dash, dot, dash, and the other ones have dash, 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 is Paul's going here, and then he's going here, and then he's going here. Now, when 
people reverse course, they get dot dash. So he goes to, uh, to a very dangerous place in the first book. Paul is an outrage in terms of his courage. Just it's outrageous. And he's with his friend and buddy and the son of encouragement, uh, Barnabas. And Barnabas' relative is Mark, who's probably barely, I, d- I don't know if he's still a teenager. I'm not sure. No one knows. But he's a young man. And you see dash, dash, dash all the way to Perga. And in Perga are the Taurus Mountains, I believe, one of the most deadly places on the planet. Thieves, robbers, steep drop-offs. It's a nightmarish place to be. I've seen films on it. You can probably find on some TV thing, a whole segment just looking at Paul's life. And then they showed you what he had to go through in that part. And you see the dot, dash, dot, dash, as it's if uh, Mark is running on water to get back home. And some say, literally, some of the early apostles and teachers say to get back to his mommy. Now, his mommy was a very interesting woman. Her name was Mary, and she was probably a widow with some serious resources, and she cared for the early church, and you'll find them in the scriptures meeting at her house. So Mark was a dedicated kid in the Lord, utterly interested, intrigued, and more than that, utterly born again. Uh, uh, Just a different, so in spite of his uh, bailout on trip one, he wants to go on trip number two. And you'll remember, Paul and Barnabas have a fight over it. Paul, as as I experience him and read him, is a pretty tough guy, and I think we all know that. And he says he's not going. He backed out on us on trip one. I can't have that. I can't have that concern. I'm out here to change my world. I'm here for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can't have a quitter on my team. Oh, he didn't say quitter. That's some of the commentators' words. And so Mark uh, and Barnabas, his relative, take this very hard and they all separate at that point. And we never see Paul and Barnabas together again. But what we do see is Mark's continuing influence, because I'm going ahead in my sermon. Mark seems to be a scribe. You are gifted, and we've talked about that. You have a unique gift, say Clive there, for example, or Danny here, for example. These are gifts that I don't have. I don't have them at all. I, I, I admire them in other people. And this young man had something going on uh, which was like an effective writing style and perhaps almost a manic energy to do a good job for those that he served. He could write things down. He could record. He could scribe. He could keep records of everything for people. And you'll see that even after the breakup between him and Paul later in the book, I think it's in Colossians, Paul is writing from Rome towards the very end of his ministry, and Mark is there with him. And he uh, either uses the word love, uh, he does, uh, his beloved Mark, or words to that effect. So whatever was broken and a bit tortured in the early going with those two, had been mended, which is a beautiful witness to the love of Christ, although we fail one another or fail our spouse or our kids in some way miserably. There is grace for the sinner, thank God. And so they're back together. Not only that, Peter writes in one of his letters that Mark is a son to him. 
Mark, Mary's child, in Jerusalem where Peter worked, and he was that rock in the church that said, Jesus is our rock, but Peter was one of his little rocklets, we'll say. And he and Mark were very close and very kind of Jerusalemic. So here we have in this document in Mark, which we're looking at, and I've kind of just prefaced it, some things that we understand from different people. There was a guy named Papias or Papias, and he said he was an early um, leader in the church of the Lord Jesus. In fact, Eusebius, one of his uh, compatriots and a brilliant historian, historian, puts Papias down as not the brightest bulb in the pack. I mean, this kind of stuff is written back there 2,000, uh, two millennia ago. And so he, Papias says this, however, that no one else says, and it's a very important kind of clue to us. Papias said that Mark took Peter's words, and, and just picture Peter in whatever state they're in walking and talking and using his eyewitness account of the Lord Jesus Christ and giving out the information, and Mark's writing it down, writing it down. He didn't travel with the disciples early. He was too young. He didn't see the Lord Jesus as best Papias recommends, the historian. He says, but what he did do, he took copious notes determined to have the clearest and most concise and appropriate record of both the activities of the Lord Jesus and the early church, but also his teachings. Well, what's interesting about that is Mark is called a synoptic gospel. Nobody, you know, wants to know what that means, but it basically means you can put the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, down on a table and look at them and see there are large measures, no surprise, of absolute precise agreement between the three, which suggests one of them was used and kind of uh, a, a, a really wondrous document in terms of its precision and it's unique and special knowledge. And you hardly see any disagreement between Luke and Matthew and Mark. It's as if they're saying, if Mark said it, that's Peter. This is something you can put in the bank. Well, we believe it's all inspired. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying anything out of range here. There are just different quadrants that each of those uh, writers use. And Mark, the interesting thing about him is he's very precise He's almost childlike in his representations. He's excited. He uses the word, um, uh, forgive me. Uh, 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 he uses words that are emphatic. Suddenly, suddenly. And then these quick kind of words that just mean he's right on the edge of his seat as he's listening to Peter recount things. And some said, I don't like to dwell on this because I don't really buy it, but it's an interesting thought. These are just commentaries. They think that Mark's account is the bomb dizzle, whatever that means. They just believe that he is, a, it's a wondrous account and everyone else benefited from the things he had to say. And people listened very carefully when he talked, including that historian Papias and others. He wrote for Peter. He wrote his best remembrances of Peter's words. And Mark was not the, uh, again, the eyewitness for these things, but it, he was a disciple of, of a later vintage that made him more zealous to render a full and precise account of the Lord Jesus's work. Now, this book was probably written 
in the 50s and 60s in Rome, it's just interesting to me, this is just a toss-off, it's just my own independent thought, you know that Rome was going to be, uh, not Rome, Jerusalem was going to be totally demolished beyond belief. What's happening in the Ukraine is a nightmare. But what happened to Jerusalem it, it was so much more profound. It was as if they were erasing a, a civilization and 900,000 people. You know that. I say this all the time because it made such a deep impression on me. And that is Mark City. And at, at the end of the scriptures and Acts and stuff, you see Mark and many of the Christians in Rome. Remember how Jesus told them to get out of Jerusalem? Remember that? He said, the legions, when you see this activity, leave, head for the hills, because there's going to be a nightmarish incident in this particular city. Acts was probably written in the 60s, and then Luke writes his book possibly prior to Acts. At any rate, here's what I want to say to you. We'll start in Mark 1, 1 through 15. And the points I want to make here, they, my emphasis is this. We'll talk, we just talked somewhat about the men that wrote the book and their interactions. But the message of this particular passage, it's beautiful in its simplicity and its love for people. And it's what we all want. Here we are. You guys, for the most part, I think, are born-again Christians. That means Jesus Christ lives in you. And that same Christ, that same God who raised Jesus from the dead, if he dwells in you, he will make alive your mortal bodies for a purpose. And there's a man here that Mark is going to point to as he opens the word. And you'll see where he doesn't list a number of the forebears to prove to a Jewish people the forebears of the Lord Jesus and go into uh, these uh, lists of descendants in order to prove that he is the chosen Messiah. No, he doesn't do that. Look what he gets right into, and this is typical of his writing. In the beginning of the gospel, gospel means good news, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let there be no mistake here. Mark's mind is, we're not going to ask whether he was God. We're not going to contemplate it. We're not going to talk about it. This is who he was. God Almighty come in the flesh to save his people. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Prepare whose way? Prepares prepare the son of God's way as he descends and comes to his own people. And what God does is he sends an advanced man. When we work doing uh, outdoor evangelism, and all, uh, everybody in this room knows that you kind of send your spies out into the land. You set things up. You create a pathway for success in warfare. Or whatever you're doing requires some planning. And there are just some very gifted people that often do that for the leader in preparation. Well, that's what you have here. You have John the Baptist, and he is going to prepare the way for whom the Lord Jesus Christ he is the advance team, and there was never a better person to advance and set up a, 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 a tactical or, a, forgive me, a strategy for than this man. So here we are. As it is written in Isaiah, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. John the Baptist's thing was to prepare a way for the Lord Jesus. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. The wilderness between Judea and the Dead Sea was a nightmare. It looked like some kind of interplanetary um, 
fiery, uh, hellish kind of area that this guy came out of. And, th and there's a symbol to that, isn't it? Coming to Christ often, we come out of some kind of nightmarish background. It's just the truth. In my heart, that's what I came out of, and I wanted to come out. I didn't know I wanted to come out, but Jesus loved me enough to drag me out of that thing. And here, they're going to, this guy from almost another planet comes near the River Jordan and begins to preach about the coming of the Messiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Something's going to happen here. It will be the Lord himself coming. And then it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you'll note Baptism is not about repentance. It's about cleansing. It's also, in a sense, about dying and rising again. But the repentance is done prior to the baptism. And repentance is the change of a mind which changes the direction of an individual's life. And I'm telling you right now, I said it last week, I can't help but say it again, or I could, but I won't. The fact of the matter is what the world needs now is not only love, but it needs repentance. It's not a mean word. It's not a bad word. It is, it is the scalpel of a skilled surgeon going into the very heart of man and saying, you have cancer, but I am here to carve it out so that you can have life. And so repentance is turning from my sinful ways towards the light. It's coming from darkness to light. It's coming out of a dark, dingy, crazy wilderness to a river flowing with streams of living water. That's what it is. And baptism is a cleansing. I don't know about you, but when I've been playing basketball or doing something crazy, or I'm filthy as an old hog just because of the way I live, to have a bath or a shower is just the best thing in the world. It's just so enervating. It gives life and wonder, and you feel so much better. Guys coming back from war that find a good hot shower, it's like they've been reborn in a certain sense, and that's what's going on here. The baptism is a sign and symbol of the repentance and turn. I've died to that life, and I'm coming out. This is what your dear country needs. This is what your family needs. This is what your friends need. This is what I absolutely desperately needed, even if I didn't know it with the quality and intensity that I should have had. All the country, it, this thing was a baptism of repentance, and its outcome was the forgiveness of sins. Now, anyone that knows their own internal landscape knows there are no sweeter words than forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. They say love makes the world go round. You know what makes a marriage go round? Forgiveness of sins. We can't fix ourselves. He can. Uh, we say in AA, I think I'll let him. I oversaw addictive groups. I'm a sinner. I have my problems. Not talking about alcoholism. Love everybody. We, we're all addicted to something. It's sin. I'm a sin addict. I needed Jesus 100%. And he has changed me more and more day to day through this baptism that he gives of cleansing as I turned towards the light and away from darkness out of the wilderness into wonder. 
all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. My hope is that we are preparing ourselves for the very life of Christ to enter into us, enabling us to be his disciples and ushering in a time of expansion for the kingdom of God. My hope is for anyone in this room and and for every Christian in this area, we retune our tuning fork to the wonderful note that says, I love you in my neighborhood. I care about you in my school. I uh, serve you wherever you need service because I am here to declare to you Jesus Christ is alive and well and lives in me. We need new men. We need disciples. We need new women. We need the same old message. Repent and then be cleansed, every one of you. Receive the forgiveness of your sins. And then we need to have a method, a method to bring, which is you are the method. The man is the method. What was it about John the Baptist? Let me stop there for just a second. What was it about him? I think they just saw this guy, you know, the, you, you remember everybody gets stopped on the locusts and honey part, right? He was eating locusts and honey. Oh, gee, really? Seriously? Locusts and honey, is that real? Well, they're real if it was little beans, which is a possibility. But the fact is, apparently the North, North African um, locust was pretty tasty. Okay, just throwing that out, but that's true. And uh, uh, sweet honey or a sweet thing coming out of a tree is always good. But the point of this and the point of his dress, which seems a bit outlandish, is it wasn't at all for a man who dwelt in the wilderness. He was a child and a man of his time and his people. He wasn't a show-off. He wasn't a flashy dresser. There was one thing that beat in his heart. He was a forerunner and an advanced man for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he was going to prepare people. How? By calling them to repent of their sins, turn away and to be cleansed in baptism. And then a greater one than he was going to come, and he would fill them with the very person of God. It's a mysterious thing, with the Holy Spirit of the Lord. And he preached, saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Wouldn't you like to hear that from your dad or your mom? Well, he meant it for his son, that's for sure. But if you're a child of God, he means it for you. You are my beloved son or daughter. With you, I am well pleased. If your mom and dad failed you, if your life has been very difficult and tough, I am here to tell you there is one greater than all humankind who loves you with everything in him and gives his life for you and for many for the remission of sins and for the turnaround of your very life. And and the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. I'm going to stop here because I want to tell you a couple of stories as I conclude. Drove him out into the wilderness. What's interesting, if you look at Matthew and Luke, they're more tender. They said the Spirit 
led him out in the wilderness. And this is just the mark of, of Mark. He will say things very emphatic, drove him out. I wonder which is more true. It really doesn't matter. It's just a, a, a curious side note. What we're hoping for out of this series and everything we do is that the forerunner comes and tells us Jesus is coming. The skies will open. We will be so imbued with the Spirit that we will be praying that the Lord helps us in the individual encounters we have with the people Christ came for and died for. I walk all the time. I don't want to talk to anyone. I want to read my book. I want to listen to my whatever it is and on and on. And yet I put a smile on my face and raise it up, not to make anything out of me. No, Jesus in me loves people. And they're down and they don't want to see the smiling idiot on the, on the walking path. But it puts question marks in their heads, in my building, wherever I go. And people ask me what it is. One of my soccer guys said this week, it's not me, guys, it's Jesus. You know that. This is, it's ridiculous to think any other way. It would be the functional insanity of a man to think another. But he said, you know, you're a pastor. What do you do? And he started asking me questions about specific roles. I do not preach to these kids. I respect the boundaries. I will not use adult power and authority to foist my particular views on them. However, if they ask me a straightforward question... I'm going to give him the answer. Well, your son asked me, ma'am, so I told him. So I talked to him a little about what I do. Jesus is calling you to change, to a turnaround, to, and then out of the baptism, an explosion into real life. There was a man whose name was Billy Sunday. I think his dad died in the Civil War. He was left to his mom. He and his brother were basically orphaned by his father, but they, they were still with their mom, and they were wild. He's one of the most tremendous baseball players of his time. That was, this is probably back in the 1920s. I didn't look that up because I know his story pretty well. He was a super base runner. He was unbelievable at what he did. And a lot of the people that he played ball with came to know Jesus Christ. He became a preacher. And if you see him, and there are some tapes out there on him, he is one rough guy. He is one crazy guy. And he just tells you straightforwardly where you are and where you need to be. There is no holding back on this guy. And that was the era he lived in. Maybe it's not a wise way to approach things with, with people in this particular community, but that's what he did. And they sent a guy named Bruce Barton uh, to have a chat with him. He was a, a journalist. He was a new journalist but an extremely talented journalist. And that's, to talk to Billy Sunday was the first important assignment that fell to him, to write a series of articles designed to expose this charlatan, I guess is what they're trying to say in the article I read. He said, Barton said, I talked to the merchants in the town. He went to three different places and talked. I talked to the merchants that were cho chosen for me, in essence, he writes, and they told me that during the meetings, Billy Sunday's meetings, and afterward, people t walked up to the counter and paid bills which were so old that they had long since been written off the books. The central thing that happens when a person is born from above is life change, new decisions. You have a new ticker, 
a new heart. He went to visit the president of the Chamber of Commerce of a town that Billy Sunday had visited some time before. And this president of the Chamber of Commerce said, I'm not a member of any church. I'd never attend. But I'll tell you one thing. If it was proposed now to bring Billy Sunday to this town, and if we knew as much about the results of his work in advance as we do now, and if the churches would not raise the necessary funds to bring him, I could raise money in half a day from people who never go to church. He took $11,000 out of here, but a circus comes and takes out that amount in one day and leaves nothing. He left a different moral atmosphere. That exposure became a tribute to the saving and life-changing power of the Holy Spirit of God when Jesus, even through a a weak and frail uh, servant like me, when Jesus comes into a town, it changes everything. And a heart was turned to such a degree that they started doing the right thing, repenting of their sins, giving back the money that they in effect had stolen. Why? Because that's where life is. And people in this era saw from Sunday, just as an example of what happened when John the Baptist comes and Jesus comes in the Judean countryside. Thank God. Do you know how many people were probably saved from the destruction of Jerusalem because of the Lord Jesus? But more than that, how many were eternally saved and changed from their heart for time and eternity? You know, some of you are familiar with the story of the mutiny on the bounty, and I'll conclude with this. I believe it was Fletcher Christian, and some others were dumped off on an island somewhere. It was called Pitcairn Island, and I read a story about it, and I went to the Pitcairn Island website to find out what they say today, and their stories pretty much match. The story I read was the story as they tell it about themselves. (sighs) There was a... a, um, Uh, There were on this island nine mutineers, six native men, ten native women, and a girl, 15 years old, that were involved in a little kind of thing going on. The island was a moral morass. It was a nightmare. And I'll, I'll show you why. One of them succeeded, one of the individuals in that group succeeded in making crude alcohol on an island that probably had never experienced it. A terrible uh, thing happened. They all died, except for one man who, in some sense, according to the Pitcairn uh, Island rendition, had a hallucination. I wonder if it wasn't a vision. They all died except Alexander Smith. Smith found somewhere on the island a Bible. He read it, and he made up his mind to build up a state with natives of that island based directly on the Bible. 20 years later, an American sloop shows up there at this benighted island that was on no one's trade route at that time. It became a a trade route at, at, at some later date. But 20 years later, they found a completely Christian community on that island. There was no jail because there was no crime. There was no hospital because there was no disease. There was no asylum because there was no insanity. There was no illiteracy, and nowhere in the world was human life and property so safe. Christianity had cleansed that society. Where Christ comes, things change. Does that mean we'll never have a disease? No. But we will have a new heart. 
We will have a renewed mind. We will have fellowship with our very creator. And he is in the business of both bringing people to repentance and cleansing them and forgiving them their sins and then empowering them by his very spirit to change the world. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you for your uh, word, which is able to save our souls. Lord, if there's one person here that doesn't know that you love them, Lord, make that very real to them this day. And Lord, if there's one person here that knows that they have to repent, that they cannot continue to live the way they're living, knows it, Lord, and is willing not to lie to themselves anymore, oh God, in Jesus' name, help and empower them to just ask you to forgive their sins, to cleanse them from all unrighteousness, to set them on their feet. And yes, Lord, provide a wondrous baptism, not only in the Holy Spirit, but in water, to signify their death, burial, and resurrection. If that's your prayer, he hears it right now. If you say, have mercy on me, a sinner, he hears it. Cleanse me from the inside out. Forgive my sins. And he will use you as an emissary to heal this land.